Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Mark Cuban, a man who needs no introduction. He's an entrepreneur, investor, and the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Harpreet. So when we speak of the future of work, it has different connotations for different people. How do you think of the future of work and how do you see work changing in the next five to 10 years? You know, we're facing the ultimate disruption in that whole thought process right now. And the, the bad news is that it's completely unknown. I mean, we can, we can guess a lot of things, but the, the pandemic has just changed how we're doing things. Um, and the fact that it's completely unknown means that the door is wide open for us to create the future work that we'd like to see. You know, we're starting to see some of the basics of it with Zoom conference calls like this and work from home and more video chat. I think people are starting to get more comfortable with um, video chat creating kind of a presence like we used to expect in meeting rooms um, or face-to-face -face meetings. And I think as people adapt their work from home offices, that'll become more the case. Um, and then the, the next question or the next um, progression, I guess, is, you know, what do we do in an office, if anything? You know, do you need offices? Are there better ways to connect people now than people going and sitting at a desk? You know, and what, what is the value of that face-to-face -face human communication? You know, it, it harkens me back to the, the movie Office Space. You know, do you need somebody looking over the, the edge of a cubicle asking for the, the TPS reports? Or are we better off doing that in a Slack channel or a Microsoft Teams channel or email, whatever it may be? And so I think companies are going to really start looking at their own businesses, looking how they're adapted, looking at, you know, how they can be agile and really creating their own future, defining it as they'd like to see it. And that's a huge opportunity. Yeah, no, you're right. And, uh, you know, we, we have no idea how commercial real estate is going to survive this, right, as we go forward. Yeah, you know what, I think, you know, that's, that's an interesting question, because with commercial real estate, on one hand, obviously, there can be a lot fewer bodies in the office. On the other hand, I think you can reconfigure that space in new ways where, you know, you expect fewer bodies. And so you can create other type of features that may be of value for individuals. And it may also be that you can create a work environment that's healthier. One of the things we haven't talked about is healthy buildings. There's a new book that just came out. So that's why it's front of mind. It's a recency bias um, called Healthy Biz Buildings. But, you know, we've got to, there's, there's, we're trying to figure out a balance. On one hand, people have to commute from work, I mean, um, to and from work, and that's 30 minutes, an hour, you know, or longer. You've got the cost of doing that. You've got parking. You've got the risk of public transportation. If that's the mode of transportation you use, you know, you've got the risk of always being late. You know, so there's one side of it there, but there's also other types of risk from being at home. You know, someone, you know, depending on your family, depending on the circumstances, if you're in an apartment building, if you have roommates. So there, there's a certain risk profile there that you may be able to compensate for and make where you go to work a healthier environment. And that may be temporary, that may be permanent, and it may be irrelevant <laughs> depending on what your employee wants or works best for your business. But it's a balance sheet that we have to consider that we didn't consider before. So, so in, in this equation, technology is going to play a major role, AI, robotics. So, so how do the small guys, the startups, the small businesses compete in this new environment? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we're already in a universe of, before all this <clears throat> of AI haves and AI have nots. 
Um, AI is not easy, it's hard and it's expensive. Just, you know, your, your cloud bills, your AWS um, or Azure bills are through the roof trying to do good AI. And so small businesses really don't have those resources or the expertise and even worse, you know, they don't have the knowledge base to know when someone's telling them the truth or not in terms of the utilization of AI. And so you get a lot of bad results. And so I think we're going to see what happens, see the same type of thing that happened in the early days of the internet where the complexity levels were somewhat higher. I mean, they ended up getting easier very quickly, but where you needed to bring in a quote unquote expert and to try to help you to see if AI is even should be a consideration for your business. Because for a lot of smaller to medium-sized businesses, great AI would truly benefit them, but bad, bad AI could kill them, right? And so you're going to need to talk to people who truly have an understanding so that you can make a choice whether you use it or not. And then I also think there'll be trade organizations that are able to aggregate data across all their universe of, of companies and provide resources there that can help because there's a lot of the same things. If, you know, a trade organization, let's just say restaurants, if, you know, hoping restaurants bounce back and you want to do a customer analysis of, you know, where should you pinpoint your marketing efforts to determine which customers are the best to come in out of your universe of, poten of, of potential customers, you know, how should you advertise and where? That could be, uh, you know, a major application that the National Restaurant Association could apply for you. So it's going to be hard. Um, and then robotics is a whole different beast right? Because we're not a leader in robotics like we are with AI. We're behind Japan and Germany. You know, we're, we're okay in software and then an implementation, China's kicking everybody's ass, right? But we're facing this globalization um, hesitancy now or negative response where we're finding out that one of the greatest things that, that China has over our head, right, is that they can withhold products or we're seeing it from India now, not wanting to ship certain drugs, um, that are generic, but that we've just defaulted the manufacturing to them. And so, you know, we've looked at tariffs as a stupid way, but a way that we've implemented to improve our negotiating. And now we're starting to see manufacturers overseas withhold products as a way of hurting us. And so robotics is one way to address that. Now it's not, you know, manufacturing 1.0 where everybody wants to create the old time assembly line and try to compete that way. That's just not gonna happen, those days are gone. But if we're able to create an environment with robots where we can get the cost of manufacturing everything from the simplest tchotchkes and t-shirts up to the most complex items that can be manufactured and bring in, you know, just pulling a number out of the air, half of the products that are manufactured overseas back here, the aggregate impact on jobs, wages, and the economy would be significantly positive. And so we need as a country to really start thinking about America 2.0, the, the way we can invest in robotics, the fact that infrastructure really, when we talk about investing in infrastructure, yeah, we've got to fix some roads and buildings and bridges and airports and bring them up to spec. But, you know, this isn't the 60s and building a highway between two cities was going to increase commerce. The new highway to commerce is robotics and AI. And so we as a country need to make a significant investment to become the leader Otherwise, from a security perspective, we're going to have real issues. You know, it's just, it, it's just a whole different set of problems that we have to be considering. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of tech literate people at the top of government right now. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, uh, China is, is outspending U.S. and AI. There was a story in the MIT Technology Review recently that not only are they outspending us in 
the, the you know overall AI, but also in military AI. Uh, yeah. so, so, you know, and, and so Washington's kind of put brakes on R&D. They're not investing much in, in science or technology. So, uh, you know, that's crazy. I mean, once whoever gets to manual dexterity and tiny, long, long um, acting batteries, you know, wins, you know, then then the Terminator becomes real, not real, real. But, you know, you, you can see, I mean, if you have a tiny battery that can fit inside a robot, and, and last for 24 or 48 hours and give it full power. And that robot's got manual dexterity to, to grab things, pick up things, manipulate things. And then the AI's got the ability, not setting it, but you know, the ability to recognize what needs to be recognized in a military environment. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. you hope it's not a zero sum game, but it could be. Uh, absolutely. So, so Mark, switching to education, you, you've got three kids, I believe two daughters and a son. Your oldest right. is 16, correct? Yeah, 10, 13, and 16. Uh, yeah. Alexis is 16, um, Alyssa's 13, and Jake's 10. So, so uh, your 16-year-old is going to be going to college in not-too-distant future. And uh, in, in what ways do you hope that her education is going to be different than yours? Um, well, like I always tell my daughters, girls who know math and science rule the world. So I've really tried to push them in that direction because there's, there's such a need of a different perspective that, that women bring to um, – to, to math and science that uh, that's where I'd like them to go and I'm not forcing them to go. I'm not a helicopter dad. We're not helicopter parents saying this, 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 we're just politely encouraging them um, in terms of what she takes up. If it's not that just as long as she challenges herself, you know, um, I, they both have got a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak. And so, you know, I always tell them that whatever you want to learn, just be good at it because no one quits anything they're good at. And then once you're good at something, if you truly want to be an entrepreneur, that opens the door. So, so from, from the perspective of <clears throat> curriculum itself, right? I mean, the education that was kind of uh, built hundred years ago, we were still using the same methodology, same kind of curricula. How, how do you see that changing? This is my uncle just wrote this book. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. He's, he's, um, I forget his exact emeritus um, stature at Stanford, but um, yeah, things have to change obviously. And it, it is interesting. You know, we've got it, and I'll, I'll steal from Mark Andreessen and, and the thing he just wrote last week or the week before, I'm losing track of time, um, where he talked about, you know, we know how to educate kids well in Harvard and Stanford and these great schools. Why don't we scale that? And I think that's the perspective that we need to start taking, whether it's remote or on campus, but let's scale what works. And when we scale things, it gets cheaper, you know? So if you do it many more times now, you know, right now we, we, silo education into schools, whether they're, you know, high schools, grade schools, community college, colleges, universities. And that, you know, is just created, you know, haves and have nots. And so I, I tend to take a page from Mark's book and my uncle's for that matter, saying, you know what, let's take what works and let's scale it and let's get it so it's less expensive as opposed to having these little fiefdoms where the university wants people to come in and write big checks like my alma mater, um, Indiana, they said, well, why don't you build this building or why don't you do this arena? Uh, you know, and I, that just increases the cost of education because those buildings eat every year. They have to be managed and maintained and supported and revitalized over time. And so I'm not going to do anything that increases the cost of education. And we don't do just basic blocking and tackling things like why would any school, particularly a public school or public community college, not use open source textbooks? Textbooks are just, you know, so there's, certain, there's so many common sense things that we can do. But again, I'll go back to what Andreessen said, and that is, you know, let's take what works 
and scale it to make it cheaper and more efficient. And that's how we'll get the best results. Yeah, and, and also, you know, the, um, the, the late Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, he wrote an article saying that 50% of U.S. universities, colleges are bound for bankruptcy in the next 10 years. Oh, yeah. No, I wrote a blog post on Blog Maverick um, basically saying, you know, the school you go to today may not be in business by the time you graduate. Now, it didn't turn out to be right because I wrote about six years ago, <laughs> and there have only been a few colleges go out of business. But now, particularly with this disruption, you have more admit more um, administrators making over two hundred thousand than you do um, professors. You've got teaching assistants that don't make enough to live. You know, they don't get a living wage, and they're basically beholden to try to you know just to try to get their career, or keep their careers on path. And so, there's a lot of challenges, and you know the way things are structured. And then, you know, you had Bernie Sanders come along saying, you know, Elizabeth Warren, all colleges are free. Well, you know what happens then? They just jack up the price and keep on doing more of what they're doing that doesn't work rather than enabling what does work. And what I had proposed to somebody who worked for the Sanders campaign that they just dismissed out of hand is that if you want to have free college, and again, within the realm of what Andreessen said, do more of what works, put it out to bid, put out within each DMA, that one college will be the free college and every term, whatever period of time, whether it's four, six, eight, 12, whatever it may be in years for a contract, you put it out to bid for that term and anybody within that region can go for free to that school, but everybody else has got to compete. You know, that way you set pricing and you don't get this, this tuition and room and board creep to hide all the ills and the, the lack of efficiency that we see in the school systems right now. Yeah. And, and maybe there's a, change it in the business model itself, right? That you, you move more education online and have some blended learning. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to find out really soon what happens because all it takes is one outbreak at one school that goes back this fall and everything changes, you yeah. know? And so, you know, we're, we're learning, like our kids are doing a lot of things online and yeah, you want them to have more human interaction when they're younger and, you know, you want them to be able to go out and, you know, not play video games all day to, to kill the time and, and spend more time outside. I, we, my, my wife and I lost control of our household about two weeks in. Now the inmates are running the asylum. So we're learning the benefits of, you know, going to school more. But, you know, with university, particularly for a specialty, um, there's absolutely no reason why there can't be um, more online learning, less on campus, and just more creativity. You know, just right now, you know, universities are more structured to build their endowments and look bigger and, and to compete rather than educate. So, so the study of uh, humanities, you know, helps us build some critical thinking skills, cognitive skills. And, and you've said in the past that in, in the future, a philosophy degree may be worth more than a computer science degree. So what, what do you have in mind in that context? Well, going back to AI, right? And so, you know, with AI, nothing works unless you have good data. And that data has to be bias-free. That data has to be sufficient enough. Um, it has to be right. It has to be good data, right? And it has to be labeled correctly. And the only way you're going to get that done is with domain knowledge. And the only way that that's going to be a building block for bigger AI and generative AI properties is when you have people that know, you know, the humanities, um, whether it's philosophy, sociology, history, all these things are components in the, in, or, that become AI building blocks in order for AI to do what we're designing it to do. And so you truly need domain knowledge. Without it, AI is completely insolvent. It's useless. So, so how, uh, when it comes to AI, 
there's a lot of uh, trepidation around it, taking our jobs. And, uh, you know, obviously many professions will be displaced uh, through automation. So how do we solve that problem? How, how do we address that? So there's a lot packed into that question. One, you know, better our AI and our robotics than China's AI and China's robotics because you want, don't want to have a, a whole country economy displaced. I think you can tax um, robotics. Um, I've got a company, Hire Robotics, out of Kansas City, and they have welding machines, welding robots. And they basically charge what you would charge a welder, only they, don't, they haven't displaced any yet because they work the, the overnight shifts as opposed to the eight hours. And so it's worked out okay, but taxing them per hour like we would um, with FICA tax for human employees, I think is what we're going to have to do. And that starts building our base for social security. And I'm not a fan of UBI except for um, stay-at-home um, parents um, or partners and so or long-term care um, partners. Um, but having to come up with make good work, if you will, or federal jobs programs that these taxes will then in turn pay for. So for instance, right now with this just horrific unemployment and underemployment, you know, a robotic tax would help us bring manufacturing here that protects this country against being preempted by external manufacturers, like we talked about with drugs and other things. Um, and that in turn helps us pay for programs like tracking and tracing or testing or long-term care or support for those who are vulnerable to the virus right now. So subsidizing those jobs. And I think we'll have to extend those make work pro um, programs. And we have things like the Peace Corp and AmeriCorps that um, allow us to hire and do community projects. And we're gonna have to take those robotic taxes and use those to subsidize these jobs that are gonna be more community driven jobs than traditional jobs during some interim period of disruption. Now, long-term, it tends to work itself out, right? Because that whole infrastructure and ecosystem for ro robots requires a whole lot more from real estate to power to programming to you name it, right? And then I'd also add, add in terms of revenue generation, a cloud tax, because that's that's effectively becomes a tax on AI slash machine learning, right? Where, you know, it takes so, it consumes so much, um, power and so much processing power to do a one or two percent you know on your amazon aws bill i think is fair and i think it goes toward and it could be put towards programs for those who are displaced by this technology so so for the robot robotics tax that's a very interesting idea how would you would you would you do it on the basis of number of hours worked or how, how would you do it i would do it for hours just by the hour if you have a, a robot that does what a human once did then you know on that human you paid your um, 6.2% or 3%, whatever it is, FICA by the employee and the same by the employer. I would take that 12 point, whatever it is, percent and take 3% of it and put it towards research and 9% of it and put, put it towards the treasury slash social security fund to, to pay for future programs. So, so in, in uh, shifting now gears to the economy a bit. So you, you've got folks like Ray Dalio comparing this event to the Great Depression uh, Warren Buffet, you know, he had his uh, annual meeting for Berkshire Hathaway last weekend, uh, but he was much more optimistic saying, you know, don't bet against America. We're right. going to come out of this. Uh, you know, he had a much more positive uh, note to this. Uh, so so what, are you, what are your thoughts? I, I think they're both right. I'm fans of both. I've talked to both. You know, Ray tends to look at history and look to see where this is a replication of, of the past. And, you know, the one difference in Ray's scenario versus the past is the liquidity that the Fed immediately in injected into the economy. 
So now you're seeing the stock market up. You're seeing you know, investors have access to capital to be able to invest in things. The challenge is you can't do it fast enough to replace 30 plus million jobs, 50 million people who are underemployed, which is why I believe we need federal jobs programs. All that said, we tend to figure these things out, which makes me agree with Warren Buffett. I mean, when our back is against the wall, if you look historically, whether it's us, whether it's UK, you know, I mean, go back to the history of London and, and World War II and bombs dropping and the city being destroyed or, you know, the Civil War here. You, you, we just have a history of innovating our way out of these problems. How quickly? I don't know. But do I feel like, you know, five years from now, we'll be back to where we were um, six months ago? Yes. Um, Ten years, we'll be way ahead. Two years? I don't know. So, so how do you explain what's happening in the markets? I mean, there's a disconnect, right? 30 million plus people out of jobs and the market keeps going up. Uh, so how, how do you- uh... Two reasons. One, where else do you put your money? And two, there's plenty of liquidity to create lots of money to put into the, the um, markets. And so the bond market hasn't gone crazy. Um, you don't see rates going up. You see them still trending down. Um, and then if you're an international investor, where else would you put your money if not the USA? So. You know, do I think this is going to stay where it is? No, because I think a lot of this is momentum investing. And so because there's enough liquidity that people are able to borrow money, companies that we thought would need bailouts because the, in, the liquidity was injected into the markets recently, like Boeing's able to borrow $25 billion at 5 or 6% interest rates, which seems crazily, crazy low, all things considered. Um, but because that liquidity is there, investors now don't seem to think that any of those businesses that are holding up the market are going to go out of business. And then, you know, to, in the interest of disclosure, my big holdings are Netflix and Amazon who are benefiting from all this. I got lucky, you know, <laughs> knock on wood. And so, um, but all that said, other than those key holdings um, and some other little things I have, um, I've tried to go to cash because I do think those momentum investors will clear out. And when those momentum investors clear out, there, there won't be enough cash just to hold up the market, right? Because a lot of that cash has been invested and either that cash has to clear out, which just pushes the market lower or just stays what they are and you know, gives it a little bit of support. But I just, I, I just don't think that even with the borrowing, a lot of these companies are going to be able to you know, sustain what they had in the past. Um, and so... If I had had to guess, if I had to bet, which I, I guess I am by going mostly to cash, you know, I'd say that we're going to see another leg down. And historically, you've seen that, too. You saw that, what, 2008 after um, some of the bankruptcies that started the Great Recession. You saw that in, in the Depression era. You know, somebody said you even saw that in the 1870s. That I don't know. So, um, yeah, so that, that's my bet. But if I could easily predict the markets, I would just tell you. <laughs> I wouldn't have to guess. So, so uh, you know, U.S. is a cradle of innovation. We, we know that's been built on the back of immigrants. 45% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or their kids. And these companies have created millions of jobs, contributed substantially to the GDP. And I was surprised to learn recently that uh, in Illinois, last year, the revenue brought in by immigrant-founded Fortune 500 companies was equal to 70% of the state's GDP. Yeah. So given this kind of contribution to the American economy, what do you think about the increasing restrictions that are being engineered by Stephen Miller and others in the White House to phase out immigration? And, and they're doing this even for the skilled workers. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. Right? He's cutting off the nose to spite our face. 
And, you know, it's just ridiculous. You know, we spend the money to train them, um, train people to come over here. We have immigrants come here specifically because this is the best place in the world to start a business. And literally the best feature of this country compared to other countries and what gives us the biggest advantage is the entrepreneurial spirit we have there, which is exactly why so many immigrants come here in the first place, because we do have that environment to start and run and scale a business. And so it's just stupid. And you talk about universities, that's their best paying customers. And so if they're allowed back in, you know, why would we send them away after we just trained them with our best, you know, our best and brightest in a lot of cases. And, you know, not only do we lose the upside of them, but now if we don't let them in, those universities are losing substantial cash. Now, maybe this will be the, the reconfiguration of universities, you know, that allows them to get more efficient, like we talked earlier. But just back to your point on immigration, it's moronic. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. And look, I get the point that a lot of people feel that immigrants come in and take jobs. I understand that. But, you know, call me a believer in American exceptionalism that those people who can't get jobs, that we work with them, we get them jobs if they need them, we get them something they, you know, that is within their wheelhouse that makes them feel good and feel confident because it's a whole lot cheaper for us to subsidize that than it is to lose all the upside from bringing great talent here. You know, if you just look at how big smart businesses do it, you know, you hire slow and fire fast. You hire, you know, you take your time to find the best people. And once you do, you know, you don't want to let them go. And if they happen to be immigrants, they're immigrants. And if we want to make Americans better at competing with them, then that's what we do. We invest more in education. We, you know, we make our, our system stronger. And for those who fall through the cracks, we'll find jobs for them. I mean, there's just better ways to do it than just cutting off our nose despite the American face. Yeah, and then, you know, going back to the your earlier point about, you know, AI and how we are kind of in, in this cold war against China, right? We, 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 we are trying to, this an arms race that we are trying to win. And uh, and now we're also getting rid of your, you're not investing enough in- the imagine United- Manhattan, if Stephen Miller were in, in um, government during the Manhattan Project, I'm sorry, Albert Einstein, go home. Exactly. We have other Albert Einsteins here. Yeah. So, so, so um, switching gears to freelancing. So it's, it's a sizable component of the U.S. economy now. 35% of Americans are freelancing or more. And some, in some ways, freelancers are in a better shape because they don't have all their eggs in one basket. One employer can't fire them, right? If, if, assuming they have multiple clients. Right. But at the same time, they're at risk because they don't have the same safety nets uh, of traditional employment. Uh, so how do you think about creating some kind of a safety net for these kind of workers? I know you've been a proponent of independent workers for a long time. Yeah. You know, I, I go back and forth on whether or not they should be classified as employees for just that reason, you know, because effectively they are, you know, whether you're Uber and Lyft, it doesn't matter. You're just part-time for both. Um, it's just the, the digital version of having two jobs, you know, um, because you have to follow pretty much all their rules. But at the same time, I don't see that happening quickly, even though California is trying to change that. And so I think the first, it starts with healthcare and we really haven't gotten anything new. We need a different type of safety net. Um, and I'm not a fan of Medicare for all or single payer simply because there's no reason for you or, you know, pick somebody who is driving an Uber cab or Uber you know, and Lyft. Um, they shouldn't be paying the same amount as I pay for my healthcare. 
So I, I really believe in means tested. And if you're below 250% of the poverty, of 250% of the federal poverty level, then your healthcare shouldn't be more than maybe a copay. Um, and then above that, it should be means tested to up to 10% of your income. And believe it or not, this is a study that I actually had done with the Rand Corporation and it, get, it increases and improves the healthcare. But particularly now, I mean, going into this pandemic, we had 45, 46 million people eligible for the ACA. Now that number could be you know, 75 million. And so nobody's talking about healthcare at all. And that's the key component for everything related to independent workers. Um, now, you know, the other thing <clears throat> going forward, as we're seeing with Instacart and others, I think it really just turns into people being able to arbitrage their time. You know, if I can, you know, if I can pay you for your time and it's cheaper than my time and it's you know, more efficient for me to do that, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's effectively what the whole gig economy is an arbitrage on time. And so I think we're going to find new ways to do it as people aren't, you know, particularly older um, individuals aren't able to go places or are concerned about going places. Here, you go do this for me. Um, you know, I think we're going to see that more and more as part of the gig economy. So now coming to, um, you know, your, your portfolio at Shark Tank, you've, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, small business. Shark Tank Friday nights on ABC. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, uh, every, everyone loves the show. And, uh, and, you know, given your engagement with the small business, the, the startups, uh, how, how are you seeing them coping in, in this environment? Yeah, it's tough. Obviously, if you're a retail business, you're screwed you know, meaning retail establishment. And I don't have many of those, fortunately. Um, but yeah, physical retail is going to have to reinvent itself or it's going to have ginormous problems. Um, those who have strong online presences, like we've pushed all our companies to have, have done okay. And some of them are actually up. We've actually had to tell a bunch of my Shark Tank companies not to take the PPP because their business is up and, and, and really getting better as more people feel... Um, comfortable with online buying. Um, and then in other, some other cases where there have been um, breaks in the supply chain, that was as much a function of the tariffs, which just ridiculously refused to go away as anything else. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal distribution still um, of good, medium, and bad, but it hasn't been as bad as it could be. It hasn't been as bad as it was for most. So, so what would be your advice to uh, entrepreneurs out there who are trying to uh, you know, who are struggling in this economy. Yeah, I mean, look, number one is all your stakeholders, employees, shareholders, um, vendors, customers, prospects, be brutally honest, communicate early, communicate often, be authentic, be transparent. Everybody's scared still. You know, everybody's still trying to figure out how to use the PPP money. Do I spend it now? Do I have to spend it now? Do I worry about, you know, for, forbearing it or having it forgiven? Or do I, you know, just treat it as a loan? What's better for my business? And really, that's the biggest conversation I've had now that, now that it comes to mind. You know, the, where we've had some companies get PPP loans, you know, trying to go to that 25% overhead to 75% payroll and re, um, rehiring people in order to get that forgiveness, do they adhere to that? Or do you take it as a loan or do you scale down the forgiveness and not hire everybody back to some of those people are making more on unemployment and don't want you to bring them back or even offer the job back because they'll lose unemployment. And so how do you balance that? That's been hard. But for so that's kind of the, the next part after communication. Yes, apply for the PPP loan, whether you're an independent contractor or, you know, small business of two employees, whatever it may be. 
but look to see what's best for your business. Make the decision. Don't run your business to, to get the reduction in the forgiveness of the loan. Run your business to give yourself an edge. And then part three, you know, innovate, be agile, because we're all going through a reset. And, you know, like I say all the time, we're going to look back in 10, 15 years, and there's going to be 5, 10, 20, 50 companies that are world-class game changers that were created because of this pandemic. Why can't it be you? Why can't it be your company? Why can't you change the game? You know your competitors are struggling as well. And even if you're competing with larger companies who maybe can work on smaller margins, or maybe you can work on smaller margins because you're lean and mean, they're worried, they're worried about protecting their legacy businesses. You know, they can't be as agile as a small business can. And, and that's the other point I'm making. Innovate. And that innovation doesn't have to come from the top. Again, when you're talking to your customers, when you're talking you know, when you're talking to your employees who may be talking more to your customers, ask them for ideas on how you would do things differently. Because every CEO, every entrepreneur goes through that thought process prior to all this where they say, if I only had the time, I would do A, B, or C. If I only had the time, I would redo my marketing materials, my website, whatever. If I only had the time, I would redo my supply chain. Or if I only had the time, I have all these new ideas I'd like to try. Now you have the time. Now's the time to do it. Now's the time to be agile. Now's the time to innovate. You know, one of my favorite sayings is when you run with the elephants, there's the quick and the dead. And now you got to be really, really quick because the elephants can't run at all. They can't dance. And so this is a unique time, a unique opportunity. So any, any, any parting words for the audience? You know, we all are going through that, those ups and downs right now where we're going crazy. Um, you know, we're scared. But we all have gone through that period where we have that one idea. And now that one idea is worth so much more. And while you're thinking about it and wondering if you should go for it, just ask yourself, why not me? Why not now? Anything, you know, this is what I tell my kids. You know, we'll walk around someplace and I'll say, anything is not organic. Look at that table. Look at that chair. Look at that light. Look at that device. Look at that tech. One day it didn't exist. And then the next day it did. Somebody had to come up with that idea and somebody had to turn it and into a product or a service so that we all could have access to it. When so at some point they asked themselves, why not me? Why not now? And now, I mean, because of all this, the opportunities are greater than they've ever been. There is, they're literally as horrific as all this is, there will never be a better time in our lifetimes, our kids' lifetimes, and hopefully their kids' lifetimes to start a business than now. No, this is, this is great, great advice. Uh, so, Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it, Happy.